It's interesting how these sort of targeting the female consumer, but targeting the female consumer not as an equal and knowledgeable sports fan, but as, well, women like pink, women like this. Uh, so let's create products that target this sort of idea of what women are into. Welcome to episode eight of the Pride House TO podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Gordon Marshall. Pride House Toronto aims to make the 2015 Pan and Parapan Am Games the most LGBTQ-inclusive multi-sport event ever. It's about bringing the games to the LGBTQ community and the LGBTQ community to the games. At the beginning of the show, you heard the voice of Elena Chow, the guest for this episode. Elena Chow is a sociologist. She researches issues of race and gender and pop culture, and she's also a big sports fan. In this interview, we talk about the treatment of female reporters and fans, queer athletes, gender-based violence and professional sport, and racism in international soccer. But first, um, we speak about City TV reporter Shauna Hunt. As some of you may know, a couple weeks ago, she turned the camera on a group of men harassing her at a Toronto FC game. The video, which ended up going viral, uh, featured a couple guys explaining that their sexist language was actually funny and that Shauna Hunt was just taking it personally. Elena Chow explains that this reaction is typical in a neoliberal system which blames individuals for social issues like racism and sexism. The way the reporter tried to call out this general system of misogyny and sexism was dismissed as, you know, she took it personally. You're taking it personally, you know, it's just a joke. And this is sort of the way in which uh, the logic of neoliberalism works, in which it individualizes, you know, the individual seen as central rather than, you know, a community or, you know, communities. It erases a lot of, you know, systemic uh, or structural issues and the way in which these systems of, you know, sexism, patriarchy are systemic, they're not individual, they're not individuals doing this to another individual. It's these systems, but this individualizing logic works is erases all that and is seen as individual one on one issues, we can deal with it one on one. Well, and they ca I mean, the comments that I was hearing were people being like, well, what did she expect? This is like a male, you know, this is kind of, you know, a bunch of men that go and watch sports and they're drinking like, you know, it was her choice to go and put herself in that situation, which is kind of um, a typical reaction to some of the stuff, but typical and very hard to unpack and, and, and very kind of frightening that people believe that that's, that was, that's the crux of the issue. Was, was her. Female reporters are belittled, you know, they're infantilized, they're treated as, um, you know, why are you doing this? Or, you know, what, what, what's your interest in this? Or their professionalism is questioned. I remember a few years ago, Don Cherry made a comment about how female reporters uh, should not be in locker rooms, they should not be interviewing men in locker rooms. And he responded to people criticizing him was that, well, that's the way things are. We can sort of see in this kind of his response in kind of several ways. One is that, well, this is, you know, this old school mentality. And, you know, these are mentalities, you know, that, you know, the people like Don Cherry are, you know, they're old. And this is the kind of the old school mentality. And once, you know, people like him, you know, kind of retire, we don't have to worry about this anymore because this is sort of the old school kind of 
way of seeing gender and sexism. But at the same time, we see how these cultures tend to perpetuate themselves in like very insidious ways in which, you know, sexism and, you know, patriarchy is reproduced. And, you know, we can see tons of examples of that with, say, professional women's leagues, you know, the WNBA, there have been some various incarnations of female professional hockey leagues as well as female professional soccer leagues and so you know women are making inroads we also see the ways in which they're also being targeted like for example female athletes still being treated as second class especially like let's say with right now what's happening with the women's world cup uh you may have heard that there was this conscious controversy over artificial turf. The Women's World Cup is being hosted this year in Canada, and but the women are required to play on artificial turf. And as many soccer players know, artificial turf is much more dangerous than playing on natural grass. A lot of female soccer players actually push to uh, have natural grass instead of artificial, artificial turf, but this was dismissed by FIFA. They actually filed a um, human rights challenge in the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, and this they ultimately ended up withdrawing their uh, their challenge. Abby Wombach, who the American um, soccer player who kind of led this this push against FIFA to put in real grass fields, she so they withdrew. I think part of it there just there wouldn't have been time. I think there's pressure on them to withdraw and then I think also there wouldn't have been time you know for it to go through before summer she in an interview recently said um, that FIFA actually had offers from multiple companies to do it for free to like put in real grass for free and she said um, basically what it boiled down to is FIFA just didn't want to do something that they were told to do from a group of women and I mean we've heard this before from the International Olympic Committee when they tried to get uh, female ski jumping into the Olympics in Vancouver and I remember like I saw an interview with Dick Pound who you know is on the, the Canadian Olympic Committee I'm not I'm sure I think he's also a member of the International Olympic Committee and he like straight up said you know, this is something we would consider, but since they've gone and kind of embarrassed us by putting this case forward, maybe now we won't put it in for another like six, eight, like 16 years. And it kind of feels the same way with FIFA. Yeah, I mean, like FIFA has not very good track record on dealing with social justice issues, especially with racism and sexism. I mean, Sepp Blatter, um, the current president of FIFA, has, you know, on record uh, stated that one way we could try to push uh, women's soccer is for women to wear shorter and tighter shorts <laughs> as a way of, you know, promoting the sport. And uh, I just read recently that um, in relation to the Women's World Cup and the kind of the inroads that women's soccer has been making, um, and so making in uh, gaining a broader, you know, worldwide audience. Um, I read recently, and this is actually like a week ago or something, where he mentioned that uh, he declared himself the godfather of women's soccer. And um, again, like a lot of the articles were really brief on kind of the context of it. But yeah, just the, the, that statement that he was the godfather of um, women's soccer and just the way in which, you know, in light of, you know, his, well, the way we can push women's, you know, promote women's soccer is for them to wear tighter and shorter shorts, but also not, you know, respecting them in terms of, you know, putting in uh, natural grass. I mean, Sepp Blatter is also somebody who said that one, you know, 
he kind of acknowledges that there is racism, but one way that, you know, players can, you know, deal with racism on the pitch is, you know, at the end of the game, they can just shake hands. The affected parties, the, you know, the abuser and the victim or the target of abuse, you can just shake hands at the end. And, you know, that solves the problem. That I think he generally believes that is, you know, racism is something which, you know, is just a misunderstanding that you can just shake hands and then, you know, kind of move on from that. And, there have been numerous incidents of, you know, racism happening during the World Cup, um, not just, you know, between, you know, kind of players, but also, you know, amongst um, audiences, you know, um, and this isn't just in you know, the World Cup, this is UEFA, there's other leagues, uh, it's most prominent in Europe, and you hear a lot about it in Europe, and sort of the way FIFA deals with it is, you know, it's a very case-by-case basis. In worst-case scenarios, they'll find the team, and they'll just ban their supporters from playing a match, so they're basically playing a closed-door game in which it could just be the players playing, and they're banning fans from both or one team. A lot, there have been a lot of kind of anti-racist campaigns in European soccer, mostly initiated by uh, players. FIFA, for example, has not a very good track record in terms of dealing with racism and issues with, you know, gender and kind of links with kind of this general kind of patriarchy in um, and sexism in sports, professional sports, where you hear increasing uh, stories about uh, domestic violence happening amongst all four of the professional leagues. None of the four professional for big four professional leagues have any domestic violence policy they have substance substance abuse policies you know ways in which you know if a player is caught let's say smoking marijuana um or you know with cocaine or any performance enhancing drug there will be some kind of swift action but when it comes to domestic violence nothing really much happens usually a suspension or some kind of fine really it's crisis management, PR management, as opposed to actually dealing with it as an actual social issue and trying to find ways to actually solving the issue of, you know, gender violence, uh, gender-based violence, but they kind of treat it as crisis management, PR management. How can we kind of salvage the brand? How can we, you know, make it look as if, you know, we're doing something? And we see with, especially the NFL, there've been so many cases in which um, domestic violence has uh, occurred and nothing other than sort of suspensions or fines has really happened. And then you'll have them be congratulated for wearing pink cleats for like breast cancer awareness. Like that, that seems to be a newer thing in the past few years as they're starting and I think this is kind of across most of the leagues so they're you know they'll, they'll have like a a new um line of clothing for female fans but it's like baby cut tees and like pink is a very common thing I know with um the Vancouver Canucks they have a pink jersey that women that's you know targeted for women and uh it's interesting how these sort of targeting the female consumer, but targeting the female consumer not as an equal and knowledgeable sports fan, but as, well, women like pink, women like this. Uh, so let's create products that target this sort of idea of what women are into. Yeah, I was reminded, kind of thinking about this interview before you came over, of this blog on the Walruses website of this woman who's a, a Blue Jays fan, and she was writing about, talking about going to a game and like an usher coming coming up to her and, and trying to explain to her what like foul balls were and all of this kind of stuff, assuming she wouldn't know being at a baseball game. I might just actually pull it up because she, she talked about that and then she went on to say 
yeah, like men make um, these kind of assumptions that women don't know the, the rules. But then she had this really interesting paragraph where she said, but like most female baseball fans, I actually have specialized knowledge of the game that my male counterparts don't. For example, I know what sections of the ballpark are safest to sit in, where I'm least likely to be harassed by men or to overhear sexist, homophobic or racist remarks from the male voices around me. And she's like, if you want to know in the Sky Dome, that's actually like five, section 515 and 113 are good places. And I know that weekday evening games tend to be more comfortable for women that Sunday afternoons are generally better than Saturdays and that Friday evenings should be avoided altogether. And I know that the new center field porch on the 200 level, although equipped with a beautiful view, is generally out of the question if you're interested in avoiding aggressive, drunken masculinity. And it's just like, I just love that because I just know, you know, when I think of my male friends who are into baseball, I mean, they just, this is a world they have no idea about. And this is a world that gets incredibly little play in the media and then something like this happens to uh shauna hunt i think that's the name of the city, the city tv um reporter and everyone's like what like that was just some drunken asshole and you're like this is a whole culture we're dealing with infuriating when you see this happening i mean i was not entirely surprised to hear the reaction of the two guys in the way they in terms of the ways that they responded to shauna hunt you know to try to dismiss you know, her as a reporter. I find it really interesting when I attended a women's world, um, it was a friendly between uh, Canada and Germany. This is uh, last summer in Vancouver. Um, it was mostly uh, young women there, uh, tweens, um, who were attending the game. And the energy was very different. Primary female audience, but the interest and the knowledge of the you can totally tell they knew all about the game and the ways in which they're cheering on the team and the way the team was playing. You know, this idea or misconception that fem uh, female athletes are less aggressive than men. This is not true. Uh, it's very, uh, they're just as aggressive. It's just the aggression is different. You know, they they still, you know, work hard. They are, they put their all into it. Uh, there's still body contact. And just watching this friendly between Canada and Germany and just the energy was just incredible. Uh, and then the end of the game when watching all these tweens run out and just basically you know the way in which they would run you know like run after let's say i don't know this is probably very stereotypical running after like justin bieber or the jonas brothers or i don't know who's big now who's big amongst uh tweens but you know the way in which they were going after these women to get pictures and autographs and thinking oh wow this is you know seeing these girls seeing these athletes as role models was really and actually really is really inspiring just watching them at the end of the game watching these girls yeah and i mean it, what you describe is is very true in the um i interviewed erin mcleod recently and of course her and some of the athlete, uh, other female athletes i've interviewed they had to look up to male athletes because there was no there's nobody else for them and at least now young girls can look up to them which is a big improvement but what you said, I was just reminded, in terms of the insidiousness of, of sexism and racism in some of these sporting worlds, especially the, the big four professional leagues, it's a lot of it is really subtle and people don't see it, um, uh, which is why it goes on, on 
dealt with for so long. But one of the things I was just remembering, I worked um, for a season at the Air Canada Center like eight years ago or something. The Raptors games actually tended, the climate used to be a little bit better than some of like the Leafs and stuff because there's more families there. However, they did this, they always used to do this thing at halftime, which was kind of like sort of a, a face-off like quiz face off between a male fan, uh, fan and a cheerleader. What they would do, the questions would be incredibly gendered and it would be like, um, you know, some girly question and then the cheerleader was expected to like totally get whatever the like girly pop culture question was. And then I remember for men, they would, off, they would play like, who recognizes this theme music? And they play like the Sopranos like theme. And of course, like only the guy would get it. And they would like ask the girl, the cheerleader, if she got it. She'd be like, oh, I don't know. Like, and I mean, God, she probably did know. Like it's, it's just so, but that, and like, that's just one tiny example of what it's like to attend some of those games. Well, I think also another thing you can think about too is in terms of gender in professional sports is the way in which female athletes are kind of pushed into very distinct ways. So you have the female athlete who is very butch. And uh, so she's often kind of left alone or fans and the media know that she is a lesbian. So they, you know, she can sort of have a bit more leeway in terms of how she can sort of conduct herself. Whereas you have the other, on the other hand, the, the other spectrum is the female athlete who has to overperform femininity. So the kind of Anna Kornikovas or the Maria Sharapovas who try to distinguish themselves from, let's say, um, Emily Marismo, who, uh, you know, was an out lesbian and the ways in which they they, they perform gender in particular ways. So the butch lesbian kind, kind, kind of, you know, maintain that um, appearance and conduct herself in, you know, um, a way she would like, whereas you have the female boxer, the straight female boxer who tries to overperform femininity. So these gender roles, you know, try to, you know, um, wear makeup, um, dress in very feminine ways. And you see that also in other um, professional sports as well. Danica Patrick, I know people, she's the, uh, a NASCAR Indy car racer. She's an Indy car racer. When she first came on the scene, people criticized her for... Um, she was conventionally attractive and so people would criticize her for being you know being conventionally attractive and that was a distraction from the sport and so people saw her as you know conventionally attractive female athlete she can't possibly be a good athlete physical appearance and gender roles and conformity to uh, cisgender appearances works for and against female athletes. It can try and market that, you know, kind of play up conventionally attractive, you know, appearances um, to market themselves in particular ways to performance, but also the ways in which it hinders them as well that sometimes um, conventionally attractive female athletes are also not taken seriously. Or asked like, who do they have crushes on um, yeah. and stuff like that. That, well, it reminds me, like, it's really, it's a really tough position to be in as a female athlete and similar to what you're talking earlier about with um female sports reporters and the belittlement they face but on top of that like they a lot of them and i've interviewed some of you know this people in this world they just don't want to rock the boat because they're in this really precarious position so they can be somewhat critical but not overly critical because otherwise then you know they'll face some kind of repercussions based on that and it's kind of this interesting tightrope in which they have to walk you know how much can i rock the boat and which and what ways can i rock the boat and there's this thing of like like b you got to be one of the guys but you can't look at all like 
a guy. It's it's really interesting, and especially the way in which I think um, LGBT athletes they can kind of fit into very heteropatriarchal sporting cultures in which, you know, gender norms are prescribed in very, very conventional and particular ways. And any kind of deviation from that is seen as kind of how do we deal with that, especially in, let's say, the big four professional sports. Homophobia is, I don't want to say rampant, um, but it's homophobia is uh, something that is common in these sports and you know like Michael Sam he tried to kind of portray himself as the everyday guy people who have big decision-making roles uh, saw him as was you know his sexuality is a distraction it could potentially be a distraction to the team as opposed to his playing abilities being an issue so in terms of like the, the progress that's being made in 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 the sporting world um, in Canada and abroad I mean you talked you've written about how in Europe in most countries, there's like an an anti-racist kind of like soccer body or, or organizations like that. I don't know of any that are explicitly anti-racist kind of big movements in Canada or United States. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then the thing that is getting a bit of traction these days, and it's part of the reason this podcast exists, exists quite frankly, is that people in the mainstream and governments and um, um, different sporting bodies are starting to care or be forced to pay attention to dealing with homophobia in sport. And so that's getting a lot of mainstream play, which is great, but it's kind of like, it's tough because it feels to me a little bit, it is it feels a little bit individualized still around let's have more gay athletes come out and then let's make movies about them and you know let's really like narrow in on them. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are around how to create change in in the sporting world and if there's been examples that you felt have been successful i know change has been very slow in terms of acceptance of gay athletes especially in the four big four professional sports Uh, i mean they're constant talk about you know when they just need the one big gay athlete to come out uh big meaning like some you know superstar come out and then that that's when change will happen and I mean we haven't seen that yet Uh, we hear you know reports from players from these different you know the four different leagues uh, you know how accepting they are you know of a gay athlete or would they be accepting and you get mixed uh, responses but I think the question when they ask individual athletes that is you know it comes down to well you know it's it's the individual athlete who's homophobic not you know let's say sporting cultures which are homophobic and we see how you know sexism is endemic in the professional sports in a way for example in which in which they treat um, female fans you know in very you know condescending ways in which female reporters are treated as less knowledgeable than ways in which domestic violence is um, kind of dealt with in a crisis PR mode in terms of change right now it's very slow and again I don't want to sound like pessimistic things are changing. I know the NHL has been working very hard to diversify the league in terms of players so that I know they have um, a program. Uh, they've had it for quite a while now and it's to try to encourage you know more racialized or um, primarily racialized players. I imagine be targeted towards you know other uh, groups as well uh, but particularly racialized players in uh uh, low-income communities to try to get them more involved in and interested in hockey 
And uh, it's kind of worked to some degrees. They've been some racialized players from, especially from the U.S., who have come from these programs. So there are, you know, there's change. It's incremental, especially with the NFL now. This crisis of domestic violence has sort of put has been kind of slowly pushing um, the commissioner to take it more seriously. And I think the way in which, you know, a lot of uh, sports commentators have been criticizing the NFL for not doing enough in terms of, you know, dealing with domestic violence, I think is, you know, if we keep pushing them on it, you know, the public and, you know, sports commentators and other uh, communities and community groups, there will be change, but it's very slow. Well, if you want to be part of the change, maybe help speed it up a bit, consider volunteering with Pride House TO. There is a lot of stuff going on that you can get involved with. I would name it all, but I think you should just check out pridehousetio.ca. Thanks to Elena Chow for being this episode's guest. You can read some of her work at Left Hook, which is an online journal. Also, if you want to read um, that Blue Jays article that I quoted at length in the interview, it's called Watching Like a Girl by Stacey May Fowles, and it was on the Walrus website. Thank you for listening to the Pride House Teal podcast. Pride House Toronto project is funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation, the City of Toronto, and the Government of Ontario, with support of our lead partner, CIBC. The 519 is proud to serve as the trustee of Pride House TO, providing organizational staff and financial resources to ensure the success of the project. The Pride House TO team, as always, extends its thanks to everyone who contributes to ensuring there is a place for all in sport. Pride House Toronto, um lugar para todos no esporte. Para saber mais, visite-nos na internet, pelo Facebook ou pelo Twitter, pridehousetoronto.ca.